Hey, welcome back to the Real Arabic Podcast. It's Kira here, and I'm going to introduce today a new initiative. We are publishing our first interview in English with Hanira Taibo, who set up an organization called 26 Letters. This is part of a new initiative that where we've decided that sometimes the content that we create is actually really cool um, and some of the people that we interview are really interesting. So we're also publishing their interviews in English as well as doing our usual translating into Arabic for your Arabic learning. So today's interview is, as I said, with Hanira Taibo, who set up an organization called 26 Letters, which is really cool. It's run from Beirut. And you will hear more about how you can get involved with this initiative at the end of the interview, but go to their website to find out about volunteering, donating, or taking Arabic classes with their students. Hi, Hanira. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining us. Maybe you could start with telling us how you found yourself in Lebanon in the first place, and I guess how you started 26 Letters. So when I was 19 years old, uh, in 2015, I got a scholarship to go study in Lebanon. And I was supposed to stay a year, uh, but then Lebanon became sort of my home. So the first month after arriving, I, uh, in 2015, obviously because of the uh, Syrian war, there were a lot of refugees living in the streets and uh, selling flowers in the streets, especially children. So I happened to come across one of those kids, a very, very special one, called Salah. So it was this, this was a month after my arrival. And uh, I was walking on the streets and I just met him. We fell in love with one another. He was only 30 years old at the time. And uh, as I said, I was 19. I didn't speak any Arabic back then. He obviously didn't speak any English. And we sort of created this very special relationship, even though we couldn't understand each other. And I started to spend every afternoon with him, just playing randomly on the streets. And uh, one day he asked me for English classes so that we could, <laughs> I don't know, maybe talk uh, someday. And I started teaching him. And uh, one day, this is the long version. Uh, one day I prepared for him a birthday surprise and I brought a friend of mine that did speak Arabic and English. And it was the first time I got to actually speak with, uh, with Salah. And he basically told me all his story of how he arrived to Lebanon when he was nine years old, how he had been working in the street uh, ever since, uh, selling flowers. And uh, he told me that he didn't want to live that life anymore that he wanted to be a normal kid, not to sell flowers in the streets, but to go to school, have normal friends, a normal family that cared for him, and all these sort of things that are very natural for a kid. So since I was only 19, I went home, cried myself out. I called my mom, that's also a very typical thing you do when you're 19. <laughs> and I told her the story of Salah and that I wanted to do something, or that I thought I didn't have the resources to do anything. And my mom told me this sentence that was, um, you cannot change the world. So obviously I didn't like that answer, sister, uh, Damar, that she was living in Spain and studying there and working there. And I told her basically the same story, uh, but the answer was completely different to the one of my mom's. Uh, she basically, in that conversation, we came up with the crazy idea of creating a school just for Salah. 
and she dropped everything in Spain. She came to join me in Lebanon. Um, and we've been working on this beautiful idea that is 26 letters ever since. Obviously, we don't work with one kid anymore. <laughs> it's more. But it started like that. So basically that me trying to learn Arabic, coming to, uh, to Lebanon and realizing that the realities that children lived there were not at all the realities that Spanish kids live in Spain. Um, yeah, basically that. Okay, and uh, can you give us a little bit about Salah's background? Was he there with his family? Where was he from in Syria? Yeah, well, uh, Salah was from the capital and he came all alone. Uh, to Lebanon because it's something his family thought it would be better if he would explore first Lebanon. He came very young um, and uh, they sent him with his uncle. Mm-hmm. That was not a real good influence. Uh, so basically he came uh, to Lebanon. He started working uh, for his uncle who was also part of the Syrian mafia there. Mm-hmm. And uh, once they saw, okay, like the situation was better and the war in Syria started. Then the family came along. Mm-hmm. For the year I was there, uh, his father was diagnosed with cancer. Mm-hmm. So he died that year. And uh, from then on, and this was at the same time we met, uh, the situation changed radically. Like uh, he had two little brothers, only a mother. Uh, his uncle was not nice at all. Um, so his family life was very, very uh, sad and uh, n- not really safe for him. Uh, but his situation has changed a lot ever since. Mm. Maybe could you tell us a little bit about his situation at the moment? I know yeah. when you when you go to Twenty Six Letters, you see him uh, <laughs> and he owns the place. <laughs> Basically, yeah. <laughs> um, now he's a grown up. I mean, uh, you can see he's a he's a man. Yeah. Um, basically, uh, we had to take a completely different approach with Salah from the approaches we have taken with other kids because Salah needed to work in order to provide for his family. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't like, I mean, we could not try to talk their family into him starting with us at the school if he wouldn't get paid from that because uh, the, the family could not survive. Uh, so basically, with Salah, we took a completely different approach. In order to help him study at the school, we developed a whole program. And this was 2016, I believe. We trained him, we trained him as an Arabic teacher, and we provided uh, students for him so he could teach Arabic. We also developed a whole set of books for him to use. And that way, we could convince the, his family of him studying with us at 26 mm-hmm. Letters while working as an Arabic teacher, which gave him not only the resources to um, maintain his family, but also to uh, earn money himself. Because uh, really he was very good paid. He learned so much English. We, we only talk in English. Uh, but obviously the situation right now is uh, completely different for him and for his family. His family went back to Syria. So uh, he stayed with uh, his uncle in Lebanon. And right now, as for the, the other kids, the situation he's going through is uh, not the best of all. Okay, that's really interesting that his family went back to Syria. Do you know what motivated that decision? Yeah, the, the, it was in the, sum, not this summer, the one before, mm-hmm. so summer 2019, uh, I believe. 
um, they started, uh, Lebanon started to implement these discriminatory policies against Syrian uh, people. So basically they uh, stopped granting papers. Um, they had this policy of demolishing everything that a migrant had constructed that was over one meter. So many houses were destroyed. And uh, the family couldn't uh, bear the situation anymore. They had help from the UN and that help also stopped. So they could not survive. So they decided to leave and uh, go to Syria, but Salah wanted to stay. And since they really didn't have that of a big connection, um, the family agreed that Salah could stay with us. And, and so we did. How old is Salah now? This is a problem with uh, <laughs> many, many vulnerable families. They don't know their age, like their exact age, if you notice, all kids are born the first of a month. Yes. Not the 15th, not the 18th, the first. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, you could say he's 19, he's between 18 and 19. Okay. Since the moment I met him, and I know he was around 13, uh, he always told me he was 16, <laughs> which was obviously he wasn't because he was very, very tiny. <laughs> um, so he's around 18, 19, but we we can never be sure because uh, they register them late. Yeah. Uh, they don't register them the moment they are born. But that, between 18, 19. With our kids, we do all the time the same, between those two ages. Yeah. <laughs> and so that means that if he went back to Syria, he would be facing military conscription, right? Yes. So he cannot, obviously. And that's a problem that uh, most of our kids face. That is something that people don't realize uh, Syrian uh, refugees that come to Lebanon, they didn't come to Lebanon because they wanted to. Nobody wants to leave their uh, house behind or their country behind. M most of them miss a lot Syria and they would love to go back. But they know that if they go back, their children are not going to have the future that they deserve. So imagine how bad their future has, has to be in Syria, that they prefer them to stay in a country that doesn't give them any rights at all you know mm -hmm. so this is a problem that happens with the all of our families some of the families we had they started to leave after the um discriminatory policies uh, last summer but they were only the families that either had uh some uh, relatives in syria and their children were small so they didn't have to join the military or that the rest, the ones that have grown up uh, children, they cannot leave because they know the consequences. Mm -hmm. Not only for them, but also uh, there are a lot of people that uh, have been imprisoned for leaving after the war. Yeah. So it's not uh, it's not safe at all for them. In Syria. Okay. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about how you went about, you know, went from teaching English to this one kid in the street, I think, to building yeah. a school for, I think now you have what, 100 students, something like this? Yes, like right now we've uh, grown quite a lot. We have uh, 1,000 beneficiaries at the moment. Oh. Uh, but uh, well, with the school open, because obviously now we closed it because of Corona, we're reopening it in January. Uh, the last uh, number we had uh, 132, I believe. Um, so basically it went very little by little. We, we weren't really aware of what we were doing. We always say it that 26 letters didn't, uh, it wasn't founded on the idea of creating an NGO. No ways. Like we just wanted to help this one kid. And then obviously more kids 
uh, come along and you also fall in love with them and it just becomes bigger. So basically, um, in 2015, I started teaching Salah in the street, uh, in the stairs of the Mathaf, the Museum of Beirut. And then more kids joined. It was like a group of five. So we moved that to Snack al Mathaf, that is a, uh, like a coffee shop, sort of coffee shop restaurant, uh, just in front of Mathaf. And then uh, they somehow didn't allow us to stay there with the kids. So we moved that to my house. And uh, it is that year that it became bigger because uh, more people got interested in the classes, not only kids, but also um, volunteers that wanted to pitch in. And uh, we started to grow from there. Uh, we had this parent, we really adapt to everyone and try to help a little bit around as much as we can. And uh, we had a period after we started the classes in my house where they implemented also this policy that was very weird. It was a policy uh, created in conjunction between the UN and the uh, Lebanese government. That was this uh, thing they did raids to detain kids that would work on the streets and then they would place them at uh, protection centers that were not really child protection centers. They were more like prisons. Mm -hmm. Children were very mistreated there. And uh, we had the bad luck that they caught Salah. Yeah. The other four kids that we had, they ran to the north, to Tripoli, uh, and they caught Salah. And we, we couldn't find Salah anywhere. Their family didn't know where he was because they wouldn't inform their family. And a military uh, guy that worked in the area, he told us that maybe he got uh, caught by the police and that probably he would be in a protection center. So we searched. <laughs> this was so crazy, man. Imagine we only knew Salah's name. His first name. And they told us, okay, <laughs> he, he's probably at a protection center. You know how many uh, protection centers are in Lebanon? So God knows how we managed to find him, but just going to all protection centers in Beirut and surrounding areas asking for Salah. <laughs> they would be like, well, there is we a Salah here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and we actually, we did find him. So we opened a, and this is when I believe that 26 Letters started to be more like a project instead of a small idea. Uh, we started uh, teaching there in the protection center where Salah was. Uh, we built this uh, whole curriculum. We started teaching not only English, but also math. We had theater too. We brought a lot of volunteers to that uh, center. But it came a moment, uh, as I said, the centers were not really protection centers. They were more like prisons. Uh, there was a lot of corruption. They somehow, we felt weird about the place because they, they wanted to be alone with the kids. Like every time yeah. they would see us talking with the kids, like as they teachers wouldn't alone. alone. Mm. No, they would bring someone, they would call the kid out. So we started to realize that they didn't want uh, the kids to tell us stuff. So we started talking with the kids like in code and realized that there was being some abuse at the center. Mm -hmm. And uh, while we were digging all this up uh, and trying to talk with the UN so that they would close the center, uh, the dean of uh, the center, decided to take all of the kids out of the center and put them in other center, in other protection centers throughout uh, Lebanon without telling us where they went. Okay. So it was a very brutal moment for us because we had 
in teaching these kids. We, uh, we really cared for them and we couldn't find them. We, they were all spread out through Lebanon with the good luck that we found Salah. <laughs> We did again search in all protection centers um, and we had the same problem. We only knew the first name of the kids and we only, we could only find Salah. He was in a very nice protection center this time. So we closed that uh, project that we had in the former protection center and we opened a new one in the protection center where Salah was. And at the same time, and this is when 26 Letters becomes an NGO, a parent calls my sister. And he explains to her that he has heard that there is this uh, group of people teaching Syrians and that uh, he has uh, five uh, uh, sons that don't go to school and that he would like us to teach uh, his family too. So that's when 26 Letters really starts as an NGO because we started this project with that family while we were working at the protection center. And it was just a family, but... Uh, they learned so fast English because we were teaching them so much and we, we started to create our own books to adapt to their needs and make them learn faster. So it was such a success that they started talking English very early. And then all the neighbors that were also uh, uh, Syrian refugee families realized that and they started to bring their own kids. So that's when it became obvious for us that we had to start renting a place because we were doing these classes at the parking lot where this family lived. So it was like an open space. So we started renting a place. We got the first, uh, th that year, all our students were somehow cousins, brothers, friends. So it was a very tight family. And that's the moment we became an NGO when we started to rent our first place and then we started to get more and more students and more and more volunteers. But it all went like that. So from very tiny, step by step, we grew not because we wanted to grow, but because of the circumstances, circumstances <laughs> for what we crossed. So very organic kind of uh, yeah. growth. Yeah, okay. And uh, maybe uh, for the listeners, it might be interesting to just explain the public school system and to maybe explain why these children, uh, while there is public school, are not attending that school. First of all, it's very important to know that the Lebanese educational system uh, is built on a foreign language. So most public schools teach uh, most of the subjects either in English or in French. So that's a huge impediment for uh, Syrian uh, kids uh, to join the school because normally the educational system in Syria is based in Arabic, that is their uh, mother tongue. So it's very hard for them to cope with the classes because they don't understand them. That's one of the first problems uh, for Syrian kids or vulnerable kids that uh, don't have parents that are mm -hmm. able to talk to them in a foreign language. And then, uh, especially for Syrian kids, there's this uh, very um, huge uh, hazard that is that in Lebanon, you can only, when you come as a refugee, for example, you can only enroll in public school if you have uh, not been in school only for two years or less. If you haven't been in school for more years, uh, you cannot enroll. The only way for these kids to enroll in public schools is through a program developed by the UN mm -hmm. that is called the ALP, is the Accelerated Learning Program, that is technically a program that 
helps kids learn in a fast way to fill in the knowledge gaps that they may have so that they can pass an entry exam to to enter uh, public school but the program somehow replicates the system it is trying to amend so the books look pretty much the same as the uh, books from the school uh, they're very big classes, they don't adapt to the specific needs of each kid, which obviously they have very different levels. And more importantly, to access this program, you also need to pass an exam. Mm. So to, to, to access a program that is supposed to put you in school, you need to pass an exam, which means that you need to be able to read and write, because if not, you cannot uh, uh, answer the questions of the exam, which most of the kids are not able if they haven't been in school, in school before. Mm -hmm. So we, it, it is basically impossible for them to access. The ones that do access, however, what we have seen through our experience is that Somehow they manage to access either because they start in first grade or because that they started in Syria and they only had two years gap without school. But still they don't know the language uh, which they're taught in and they don't know how to read and write in that language in, in English or mm -hmm. French. So uh, we did have a lot of uh, kids, for example, starting with us that were enrolled in school and they were maybe in seventh grade or even 10th grade mm. and they still didn't know how to read and write in English. God and knows how they pass the exams. To give an idea of uh, 7th, 10th grade, that's age, it's supposed to be a what age around? First grade is uh, 6 years old. <laughs> so like 12, 13, 7th grade? Both, yeah. <laughs> the problem that is also one of the problems when you place a kid, for example, through ALP, um, we had a lot of kids that were um, 13 and they were with people that were 10 yes. in the class, mm -hmm. you know, because it is very hard to reach the level of your age, you know, if you have never been uh, to school. Yeah. So most of the Syrian kids that are in uh, Lebanese public school, they're uh, older than their classmates. Mm -hmm. And also another uh, problem that uh, happens with the public educational system in Lebanon is that uh, it is based on segregation methods. So it did grow a before when we started working in 2015. You could see some kind of segregation, but still you would find Syrian kids studying in the morning shift. But uh, throughout the time, they have divided the school into two shifts. That is morning shift for Lebanese kids and afternoon shift for Syrian kids. The problem with this is not only the segregation uh, that you're implementing there, that it is very hard to find Syrians uh, having Lebanese friends because they never see each other in school. But also that even though it's two different shifts, the teachers are the same, which means that in the morning you have teachers that are fresh and then in the afternoon you have teachers that are super tired they are not very good paid and they lack a lot of training so at the end they just spend time there not really learning anything because the education doesn't adapt to their needs nor their language needs because most of the teachers they are aware that they are talking in english and the students don't know the language but they still teach that subject in that language and you have a overtired uh, teachers that really they cannot pour all, all their energy in the class because it's the afternoon, they're already tired. 
So basically the whole system is doomed to fail with regards to not only Syrian uh, kids, but also vulnerable Lebanese families that don't have extra resources to support uh, the education of their children, which is basically what we do at 26 Letters. So at the moment, we get the idea that 26 Letters is a school, but it's also not a school. <laughs> Can you tell us kind of what else 26 Letters do be, does? Because when you, when you kind of uh, go into the building, you really don't get the sense that you're in a school environment. It's, uh, it's not a no. classrooms, <laughs> everyone. Uh, yeah, it seems more like a, like a large, uh, strangely extended family. How, how do you create that? Yeah, and what, and what else do you do? With love, it's the only way you create something so beautiful and with a lot of patience. Like um, when we started uh, the school, every from that's why we always like also to tell the story of how we started because 26 letters started because of one kid. And we have coped with that idea uh, ever since. We don't think about the group of kids that we have, whereas the numbers are never important. We think about them individually, you know, and we see their individual needs as a family would do. So basically, uh, 26 Letters is, first of all, I would say a family where everyone is welcome, where we try to take care of all the needs that uh, our family uh, families have. Uh, then I would say it's an alternative uh, school. That's why when you, you say you enter the school, you see, I don't know, kids standing on the tables, um, kids eating while having class, uh, teachers and students are all over the room. They can make jokes of whatever they want. Uh, because we, are, we, we see education in an alternative way, you know, not as a, we mix formal and non-formal and informal education a lot, you know, to make them not only learn because they want to learn, but also because they have friends at school and friends are not only their, their classmates, but also their teachers, because they like to be in that free environment where they are able to try anything they want. So basically, <clears throat> Well, when we uh, started with uh, 26 letters, we didn't want to start an NGO. We wanted our families, the people we cared for, to be covered, to have uh, no needs, to be happy, and to be successful in any ways they wanted. So that's uh, what makes 26 letters special. We, even though we always say we're an educational NGO, we do so many things that are not really connected to education. Because we see education as... Um, this thing that, uh, to put it simple, if uh, you want to teach a kid English, okay, the kid comes to you. First of all, you need to assess the way he, he learns better. Maybe he doesn't learn good with books. So you assess not only uh, his way of learning, but also his needs, his preferences. And you create content, because we create our own books, that allows the kid to be engaged with that content. Maybe a content that... Uh, where his name appears on, where he can see images that he relates on, so that he is interested in studying with that book. Then after assessing his needs related to education, uh, his family is also part of our family, you know? So we also assess the needs that this kid has in relation to his family. You cannot expect a kid to succeed in school if he has a sick parent, if he's not fed at home, if he doesn't feel safe, 
if he doubts his own identity. So with all the services that we provide, we try for the kid and his family to be successful in everything, to have all the needs covered so that the kid can actually succeed in school. So what we basically do in 26 Letters, apart from providing uh, students with a formal education that is adapted to their needs, because we have many kids that will, will never be able to attend school, but still need formal education. Uh, we also provide them with services, uh, educational services related to non-formal education. We provide them with uh, recreational projects so that they can experience life and go to a mall, go to a cinema, go to a restaurant, visit Lebanon. Because most of our families, when they first came with us, they didn't know Lebanon. They only knew their street. Uh, we also provide them with, uh, uh, with finance uh, medical treatments. Uh, we finance uh, also medicines for all of our families so that if they cannot cover uh, some treatments, we finance them. If they need to do an operation or go to the hospital, we also finance that. Or if they need uh, help in any bill related to school, food, whatever, we also finance that. Um, and we have a lot of services of accompanying uh, our families. Most of our, our families uh, lack access, not only to a hospital, but even for school registration or when contacting other uh, NGOs, they, they don't have access to those services. So we, um, we talk on their behalf, we accompany them to make sure that they get access uh, to said services. We do a little bit of everything and we adapt all the time because for me, that's what an NGO uh, should do. You cannot expect a family to register in five different NGOs so that those five NGOs cover their different needs. It's impossible. Uh, so we try to cover them all and adapt all the time our services to them because their needs change all the time. You know, you cannot, uh, we, we don't like to create strict projects that stay like that. No, we adapt to the new needs of our families and that's basically what has helped us cope with uh, 2020. It has been a year super crazy that we had to stop our educational programs, for instance. And uh, our family started to have these super new needs that we didn't know how to uh, meet. So through a lot of communication and the flexibility of our NGO, we started a new program that is uh, our humanitarian uh, projects. And basically what we're doing is uh, we're delivering uh, personalized boxes that contain the food, the medicines, the baby products, uh, the hygiene products and the sanitary products uh, that each of our family needs to survive for a month. So monthly we're providing them with this help that as I said is personalized and they can just call us and say, hey, I need this new medicine and we put it in the box. And uh, basically throughout uh, the corona pandemic that has been our main uh, work and uh, this Christmas, we're delivering to our final uh, 1,000 beneficiaries, which for us is a lot taken into account that we are a tiny, tiny NGO. But uh, basically that we have been adapted, uh, adapting ever since. And that has uh, been what has helped us um, cope with every situation. And regarding to, I mean, everything you do with love, everything you do with uh, care and with information, which is very crucial when you're an NGO, get informed of the actual needs of the beneficiaries. It, it, it has to succeed. And 
just how do you choose your beneficiaries? What kind of pool? Is it from your students' families? Does it go beyond your students' families? We don't choose them. They choose us. Uh, I don't know. Uh, and it would be very interesting uh, in knowing if there is any other NGO like us in Lebanon. We do not have a target group. We believe that uh, Lebanon suffers from... Uh, a lot of segregation and uh, we didn't want to use uh, segregatory methods to choose our target group. We always believed that if somebody knocked at our door in the school and wanted to study with us, it's because that kid, independently of uh, its economical situation, social situation, identity, nationality, needed a help. We have, and that's what uh, makes us our school very special and our kids so understanding of other cultures. We have very a very random group of beneficiaries. Most of them, we don't even ask for their nationality. We know that m many of them are Syrians because we've always worked a lot with that community, but because by chance, because our NGO is where it is. Um, but we have many, especially now with the humanitarian boxes, many, many families that we really don't know where they are from. Because we don't ask, we don't need to know. If they asked us for a humanitarian box, it's obvious that they need uh, the humanitarian box. So we just ask for the number of people so we can assess how the, the amount of food we need to provide, the medicines that they need, and if they have babies. So we've never really cared about a target group because you cannot really assess who needs it more. They all need it. And that's what makes them actually learn in a non-formal way. Like uh, there's a lot of racism between Syrians and Lebanese, both ways. How do you break it? Let them play in the playground together. It's as easy as that. Bring teachers from all around the world. You don't need to teach about racism. You just need to bring teachers from Africa. And they will learn them. It's impossible to be racist if your teacher is black and you love him. So we do that. We just mix them all together. Obviously, we provide for trainings about equality and non-discrimination. But just by mixing, mixing people from very different backgrounds, they learn about understanding each other by playing together, by, by talking together and realizing that they all have the same problems in common or the same preferences. It's very easy. It's so interesting what you're saying because it goes so against the normal humanitarian model and the model of so many NGOs that say, you know, we are focused on Syrian women or we're focused on this specific age category or group. And I suppose I'm interested in what you think, why you, why you went down that path and what the reaction has been from, let's say, the traditional industry, if you're getting, uh, if you have any contact with them? Um, we never really thought about a target group. Like, it, we did have um, some problems with uh, people that thought that uh, it wasn't good to make some kinds of kits with some other kinds of kits because they would influence each other in the wrong way, never in the good way. You know, if you put uh, kids that work in the streets with kids that uh, live with their parents and go to school, 
it is obvious that the kids that go to school are going to end up um, in the streets doing uh, bad things, you know? They never saw the other thing. It's like, maybe they both learn <laughs> to be nice kids and they learn about the circumstances of each other and that they all have needs. And we have had also complaints of, uh, especially our third year, we used to work a lot with uh, Lebanese kids that uh, were not from a high economical background, but they were neither from a low economical background. Uh, so we also heard some complaints of these kids are not the ones that needed the most. And we always replied the same. They knocked at our door, we answered the door, and we welcomed them. Nobody asks you for something if they don't need it. Maybe they just needed friends. We even had an American student in our school, like studying with us. An American kid. <laughs> we were so surprised. And we accepted him. We adapted our services to him. If he wanted to learn at 26 letters for some reason, he obviously spoke much better than us English. I don't know. He needed something. For instance, he, what he needed was a safe space. Mm. you know uh but we do we have had complaints never from our beneficiaries they're all super mega understanding super super understanding but uh, always from people in the outside that always think that they would do better than you even though they haven't done anything yet uh, but uh, still we really know uh, what we are doing we have uh, um, experienced a lot what the intersectional um, methods are, and we know that they work. So like, uh, yeah. In your experience, what does happen when you mix those kids, the kid who's selling roses on the street? Magic, man. <laughs> Magic. Seriously, I cannot describe it, and I invite everyone to come visit our kids because uh, not even me. I didn't think that would be possible. I, we never really thought that ahead of how they would become. But uh, right now, I am super confident to say that all of our kids are open-minded. All of our kids welcome every type of diversity. And that's something very impressive because it's something that doesn't happen in Spain. You know, our school welcomes, and when I say all types of diversity, I mean all types of diversity. And our kids do too. Like, um, for example, I always tell this story. Um, we had this uh, um, volunteer from Australia and uh, when he came to volunteer with us, we told him that we, he could uh, say whatever he wanted in the classes uh, if it was positive and ethical. And we explained him that he could share any personal experience he wanted, uh, that he could to basically be free at the school. And uh, we put him an example, like, for example, I don't know, uh, you're a guy, if you have a boyfriend, I don't know, maybe, not assuming, you could share that with your kids, we have no problem, like, really feel free to share anything um, that you think would be, like, personal for you and you want to share it, and that would also uh, be positive for the kid. So uh, we had this party with the grown-ups, uh, with our uh, students, the, the grown-ups, and uh, the volunteers and the Australian volunteer came to, to us running. And he was like, oh my God, I don't know if I did something wrong. I was like, what happened? And he was like, so there is this kid of yours, Onar. He came to me and he was like, sorry, can I ask you a question? 
And I was like, yeah, sure. And he was like, are you gay? And he said, and I don't know if I did the right thing, but I said yes. And he high-fived me. And then Omar came and he came to me and he was like, Hanira, uh, you see that Australian teacher? My teacher. I want him to be my teacher. They are super open-minded. You know, they're, they're just super nice. And not only with uh, these kinds of diversity, but also men with uh, women empowerment. I've never in my life seen kids that understand so much uh, discrimination against women. Never in my life. Like, uh, we all obviously have our things, but uh, we really have raised feminist uh, kids, and I'm very, very proud of that. And you just do it by that. Um, basically, what we do is uh, not only the school, uh, we have a lot of the uh, diversity, not only through the students, but also through the teachers. But I think the magic comes from our books. So uh, when we first started at 26 Letters, we were using books that were recreated. And we realized that the, the content was, you could not really engage with it because, I don't know, you're reading about uh, John that drinks tea, you know? And the kids are like, what is John? Is that a word? And it's like, no, it's a name. And you have to explain that it's a name. Uh, they did engage with the, with the content of the books. And they were very, very um, sexist. The stories, it happens also in Spain. It's not like sexism, but if they put you an example in an English book, is the kid plays football and the mom cooks at home. You know, by those examples, they are pushing a little forward these sexist stereotypes. So we didn't like that. And we decided, crazy idea, to start doing our own books. And I think from there comes the magic. Because when you see our books, uh, all the stories that are in there uh, reflect diversity, uh, they reflect equality, all the pictures, because pictures are super important that they see. It's not two pictures of a kid, a white kid playing football with another white kid, which they cannot really relate to because they are not really white. You know, it's about a shaved woman with tattoos, uh, I don't know, combing a, a woman's hair, or it's it's it shows diversity, you know, and all our material, we use this uh, idea of mainstreaming ethics throughout our books. Because even when you're learning maths, you can still learn about some ethics. So at the end, I believe it's the books. They see diversity not only through their teachers and their peers, but through the books. And they learn about what it is to behave good. Okay, I have two questions from that. One is... Are your books available? If somebody wants to take this idea yes. and run the initiative, they're all available? Yes, actually, because uh, we believe education should free. It should be free, like, for everyone. Uh, so it's actually written in our web page. Uh, we do not only provide our books in PDF, but you can also send us an email, and we will send you the books in Word version so that you can adapt them to the, your community. Because obviously our books wouldn't work in Spain because it's full of names. And it also includes the names of teachers and founders. <laughs> but we also provide them in red version so people can change them, you know. And also they, it appears a lot of uh, Lebanese and Syrian food. People cannot really relate. So yeah, feel free if anybody wants the books. We, we obviously give them for free. 
as for contrast, what would be the, the, the social norm around, uh, for example, homosexuality in uh, the backgrounds that the kids are coming from? So um, I always say the same. Um, Lebanon is different to a village in Spain. They're as sexist as, and as homophobic as a village in Spain, but obviously you cannot stereotype. Like they, you may are open-minded within there. I seriously, I find the same kind of sexism and uh, homophobia I would find in any other person living any world. But in order to break it, because it's really linked to religion. And it's something it's very hard to fight against because obviously you'll be breaking their religion. But uh, yeah, basically Lebanon is uh, it's always been considered somehow the paradise for gay people, even though I would never call it a paradise. Unfortunately, the internet breaks up at this point, but basically Hanira says that Lebanon is comparatively better than other Arab countries like Syria, but that homophobia and sexism are still rampant. She starts to say that it's not common for NGOs to work on these issues. Common at all to find uh, schools or less projects or NGOs that... Uh, tackle these kind of topics in the Arab world because most of the NGOs schools at the end uh, they're part of the government so obviously they're not going to tackle these kind of uh, topics but most of the NGOs they believe that uh, it is not a pressing need that there are other uh, issues that should be solved first like women rights or children rights. At 26 Letters say we believe as with our uh, target group that all issues can be solved at once, you know, all together, and that they are all as important. So we, through education, we just make a mix and try to solve them all together. If people are interested in getting involved, um, or if people, so donating or volunteering, maybe you could tell them how they could do that. Yes, so you have all the information about uh, our NGO uh, at our webpage, which is www.26lettersschool.org or org. I don't really know how you pronounce it. And there is all the information there of how you can collaborate, giving us your time, your ideas, obviously uh, some sort of donation if you're able to do that. We have a very, very nice sponsorship system that basically um, allows us to um offer the opportunity for families all around the world to sponsor one of our families so we have uh, some people right now that uh, donate monthly uh to us and we use their donation to uh, cover the costs of the humanitarian box of a specific family so uh, you can choose the family you want to sponsor and uh, we have very big families with a lot of babies and we have smaller families and um, Basically, what we do at 26 Letters, and I think this is the most important thing, uh, nobody gets paid at 26 Letters. We are not an enterprise. We, we believe uh, that as a small NGO, what we're doing is uh, because we love the kids. So all the money that we receive at 26 Letters goes in full 
to our projects and our beneficiaries. There are no staff costs, nothing related. Everything is used for the, for the school and uh, the related projects. So basically, for example, the sponsorship program, if you decide to donate uh, monthly to one of our families, we buy all the products that the family needs, we deliver the box to their house, and uh, we send the person that is sponsoring us the receipt so that they can see where the money went and a video of the family receiving it and showing all the products so they can be sure where the money went, which is one of the big issues with the NGOs sometimes. Yeah, so we also need time and ideas. At 26 Letters, we've grown thanks to random ideas and random people that decided... Um, about it, to create a collaboration with us with their school um so we've grown by these little acts because sometimes it's not it is not all about money time is also super precious for us so if you want to volunteer either in lebanon or abroad we have a distance volunteering program and uh, or if you just want to get in touch with us because you have an idea and you want to work with us just let us know I actually, I didn't know that nobody was paid. So you and your sister are working on this uh -huh. almost full time, right? Yes, <laughs> it's a huge problem sometimes. That's incredible though. The yeah. thing is that uh, we're very, very small. Like if you saw our budget, you would be super impressed. We manage money very good. Um, we are a very, very small family. Like right now, because we are working with 1000 uh, beneficiaries, uh, but before it was 100 over 100 children and their families. We were really small. We are a family, so we really we know where the money goes, um, and we obviously didn't want it to go to our pockets. So we we always find alternative ways for us to live because we know we didn't create 26 letters for it to be an enterprise we could live from, but to be like a home. That's really lovely. Um, yeah, I think that's yeah. what makes the difference at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a vocation, not a job, right? Yes. Indeed. What yes. is usually the goal of 26 Letters? Do you have a goal in mind for the students? Is the goal to get them to public school? Is it to get them to university? Is it to get them to work? Or do does it depend on the, the kid? Our goal is for all of them to be successful. Really, it doesn't depend what success means to them. Like uh, we have kids that uh, want to go to school and we enroll them in school and they want to go to university and we are teaching them so that they can pass the exams and uh, reach higher education. And then we have kids that uh, just want to leave that's a, a normal person with a salary. So we created an Arabic program so that they would be Arabic teachers. Our aim is for them to be happy, to be successful, to be safe. Uh, but we do that through education because we know that there is only one key that can break the cycle of poverty, only one key that can solve every issue that our kids have and their families do, and that's education. You give them, them education and they're going to be good people and they're going to be able to succeed in whatever they do. But without education, it's very hard for them to break that ceiling. So for us, our only objective is for them to, to be successful, to be happy. 
and we use whatever means at our disposal to achieve that. Fantastic. Actually, uh, that's maybe another way that people could support you and support the project. And it's something that's particularly interesting for our listeners. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Arabic classes that you provide? Yes, so um, we started uh, this Arabic program because we had several kids that uh, were working in illegal jobs or in very hazardous environments or they simply weren't able to attend our classes because they had very long uh, working hours. So what we did is uh, we tried to find a path for them to study with us uh, while obviously getting money so that they could provide for their families. So we came up with the idea of training them as uh, Arabic teachers and uh, providing them with the material and the students uh, they would teach. So we have been working uh, on this for the past three years and it has been a total success in the sense that uh, as with our school, with the Arabic program, we also create our own books and uh, we have created them not only for uh, foreigners to learn Arabic in a quick way, but also in a very funny way. So the classes are super entertaining. Uh, they are taught not only by the students um, that we train, but also by professionals that teach Arabic, and they uh, use uh, our teenagers as support teachers. Uh, the classes, uh, you can also find all information about the program in our webpage, in the Arabic classes section, and you will see the prices are super mega affordable. Because uh, at the end, the salary that our kids need to provide for the families and also raise funds for themselves is not that much. And we also wanted the price to be low so that people that want to access these kind of services, wants to learn Arabic, but they don't have the resources, especially now in this year. We wanted them also to be able to access these kind of classes. And also there is a very special uh, thing about our classes that is that if you volunteer with us, you get a super mega discount in the Arabic classes so that the people that want to really learn but have zero resources can also join. And the classes are um, online and in person in Beirut. Fantastic. Okay, thank you so much. And then, uh, so I have no more questions, but is there anything else that you would like to add or things that you would like to share with the world? Not really. I think I, op I opened my heart to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, that please, if uh, now it's a very odd time, uh, people cannot really travel and everything is online. Uh, but um, be aware that you can make a huge change by volunteering with us online or by sponsoring uh, one of our families. When you become part of 26 Letters, either because you donate or because you volunteer or because you sponsor, um, be aware that we keep you in our inner circle. We keep you informed. You, you will be part of something very, very beautiful. And we work very, very hard um, to make that all your work goes for something powerful and life-changing. And I highly recommend, I mean, the school isn't open at the moment. Do you have any idea of when it will be? Yes, uh, we're opening in the 1st of February. Uh, we've been working very hard uh, to put all the preventive measures uh, that we can. And we are going to open in February all of the services we used to provide before Corona. So not only formal education, but also non-formal education. 
Great. So we are become we are going back to the way we were. Perfect. And I highly, highly recommend if you find yourself in Beirut um, to visit if it's possible when it's possible uh, 26 letters it's a really really beautiful place I've only been there a few times myself unfortunately but um, it's a really really inspirational project and thank you Hanira for setting it up um, oh thank you thank you <laughs> yeah and I'm really glad that you were able to share your story here today and I hope that lots of people are able to hear it because it's really inspirational thank you no thank you for giving me this space to talk I don't know how long this was. <laughs> An hour and ten minutes, <laughs> but it's fine. Part podcast, <laughs> part therapy. <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, uh, I suppose, unless there's anything else, uh, that's it for now.